As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey there, guys. This is Kaylee McMahon. You are tuning into the number one leading ladies podcast. This is a podcast by women for women. And what we focus on in this podcast is mind expansion. If we don't expand our minds and if we don't dream big, then we can't set big goals and we will not make big achievements. That is the main focus of this, as well as being able to help women work with each other to be able to lift each other up instead of tearing each other down. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to Number One Leading Ladies. It's a podcast by women for women. We focus on building women up instead of tearing each other down. So today we have my awesome CPA that's with us, uh, Christy Seipel. She is, I know I'm going to let her actually introduce herself. I won't do it justice. Uh, she knows everything about numbers that I don't know any, well, enough about to be able to do just the magic she does with our taxes. Christy, go ahead and tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm Christy Seipel. I'm a uh, female CPA in this world and my own firm, and I founded it in 2014. Um, I've been dealing with real estate for a long time, began working with real estate uh, in the year 2000, so it's been a long time since I've been in it. Uh, and so I've gained experience over time with lifetime exchanges, with uh, what you would maybe call 1031, and all kinds of areas of the real estate um, market and industry with single family, multifamily. We do quite a bit of real estate uh, reporting for those investors out there. So I'm excited to be here with. Um, with Kayla today, and just a little bit of, of more about my background. I am a mom too, with them being both in college. Uh, I've been married about 26 years and live here in the Waxahachie area of Texas. Oh, I love that area. <laughs> it's awesome. It's pretty. It's pretty. Uh, you know, it's one of those areas. It's kind of calm, but it has some growth to it. It's kind of a slower growth, but we have businesses coming in and and it's still that small feel, but you have things that are close by to Dallas. So I really like the area. It's kind of, it's peaceful here. Yeah, I agree. There's not very much crime. It's 
yeah, I won't get too much into it, but like there's some apartments down there that I'm sad I wasn't able to purchase because it's tremendous growth in the last 10 years and like no crime. And it's basically a Dallas suburb. It's, it's, I think it's coming next. So, um, well, let's get a little bit into uh, a really awesome presentation that you had together for us today. And I'm going to try to see if we can get a copy of that uh, for later. Um, so if anyone's more of like a visual person, I am recording this on video so we can use it on YouTube. And then also, um, I'm going to be taking the, um, uh, audio and then using that for the podcast. <laughs> there we go. So, um, either way you like to learn, uh, this is great. So I really wanted to spend some time. I realized that there are a few, I guess, uh, points of disconnection or, um, not good communication on my part, maybe. Uh, when it comes to some of the uh, passive investors that have been interested in doing projects. Um, some of them, like accredited individuals, seem to kind of know everything and they just roll with it and they don't ask for many questions and they understand uh, tax advantages, disadvantages, you know, pros and cons of being um, an active investor versus a passive investor um, in a multifamily syndication. So some of the newer people who are interested in doing deals, uh, they have a lot of questions that I always just say, you know, defer to your CPA and make sure your CPA is real estate specific so they'll be able to answer these questions. And I think that they're not doing that step. I think they're not calling their CPA and having that conversation. So um, I feel it's like a little bit of my duty to at least have some kind of educational content out there to where if someone's like, how does this work? It's not me saying something and then messing it up because I'm not the professional. You know, I'm really happy that you're here today to like help everybody bridge that gap. So uh, that's what we'll be talking about today. Right. I think that's a good point to be made, Kaylee, because, um, you know, they're, they're reaching out in other ways to get their education. It's either maybe in a seminar like this or uh, in amongst their peers. And so quite a few people are learning this um, investment opportunity that they have and understanding what it means to them. And there's still some, even after that, some gray area, which, you know, reaching out to their CPA is a great place to go. Uh, and, and hopefully they have a good com conversation about what it means to them when they're investing. Um, but I'm happy to supply some of my knowledge today and, and to, you know, share what I know about it. Hopefully um, passive investors and, and, active investors will gain something from this. Yeah, because that's always questions that I'm like, that's, I'm not the CPA, don't ask me, because I'm going to mess something up. Just like how you, you know, when someone asks a legal question, you're like, I'm not an attorney, you know what I mean? It's the same thing. So we have an expert with us. I'm excited to, to see or to go through the um, slides.
Yeah. Post here so I can disabled. If you want me to screen share, I can. Oh, wait, there. I see your hand up. Wait a second. Um, can you, like at the bottom, does it have a screen share thing? The green thing? It does, but it's saying that the post has disabled the participant screen sharing. But I thought there's a way for me to request to be host. Uh -huh. um, I'm not seeing it come up. Well, if you want to, I can pull it up. And let you... Yeah, if you have it there, I mean, I have it open. It's just not. Um... I can get it real quick. Oh, well, that's a request for um, remote control. Ooh, my computer is being slow. Okay, it'll pull up in a sec. Oh, wait. Hopefully this is okay for now. Bam. Okay, so we're, we're gonna talk about real estate investments and, and really what I'd like to do today is just kind of highlight some of the things around your investment and and talk about a few topics that a lot of people um, have questions about and they end up calling me or calling their other CPA or, or reaching out to the peers to get the one-on-one on, on what it means to them. Uh, and what exactly does that mean on income tax level as well as what it means to them as an investor and their um, intent to uh, grow their wealth and what they want to do with their wealth. So we're going to highlight those uh, investment issues, and, and we're going to begin with some of the income tax topics that we often hear about and the, the jargon may be heard amongst your seminars that you go to or amongst other people that might be in the industry. So I wanted to, to highlight some things that I think are useful for, um, for you to understand. So we're talking about a new real estate or existing real estate building under our new reform act that we have from 2018. There was quite a bit, as you probably already know by now, quite a bit of a tax law changed in that year. And it brought about our ability to utilize our number one topic here, bonus depreciation. 
Now, cost studies, if you've heard that terminology now, it's really just reaching out to your uh, study groups here in the area, or, you know, some of them actually can reach across state. And they're specializing in these cost studies. And what they do is they walk the property, they go out and investigate what kind of property um, uh, costs they may have there, you know, whether you have uh, certain specialty and amenities on the grounds, what's inside the units. And they began to do a study and they break out these costs uh, into categories. And there are categories that are super important for us as CPAs to determine how much of our costs we're gonna be able to write off in the first year and how much of that cost has to stay uh, slowly depreciating or cannot depreciate. So this cost study report will be produced and it will provide us about 30% of the acquisition price. So we're talking about a $10 million building, uh, apartment complex, about 3 million of it will probably come off on this cost study as what we would call eligible property for cost uh, bonus depreciation. Now what bonus depreciation does is it accelerates that cost and allows us to deduct it in the very first year of the purchase. And the very first year that you're actually renting the property and that usually causes your K-1 to have this huge loss, you know, more significant than the other year that you hold this property interest. Some people have said, well, what is the benefit of that cost bonus depreciation that's coming through? That is a tax deduction and tax write-off in the very first year. And, and for some people, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes, for some people, this uh, benefit that you're seeing is coming through the K-1 may not be necessarily available to you in the very first year that you make your investment. Others may find this very advantageous. And we'll talk about the timing of these, but and ultimately what we're looking for is to save money while we're holding the investment. It's not necessarily a bad thing to see a loss in your K-1. I think in times when you're maybe looking to lend, uh, to borrow money from a lender, you may have some explanation that you will have to do, but the, this is a tax loss, not necessarily cash flow loss. And that's what we have to keep in mind when we're looking at the box two on our K-1, which is where your bonus depreciation will show up, that this is not necessarily saying you're losing money um, it is a tax loss and a tax benefit that comes to you. Now, cost studies haven't just appeared since 2018. This, they've been around for a long time. And these uh, studies have definitely benefited us even when there wasn't the ability to do the bonus depreciation on existing buildings. Now, when I say accelerated depreciation on my slide, I'm meaning bonus depreciation, but there is also other accelerated methods that can be utilized um, in order to maybe not create as big of a loss in the first year, but also could be very beneficial between years one and three. And so as our tax reform begins to change again in the next few years and our, our bonus depreciation starts to phase out, uh, we will we'll still find 
a lot of benefit in that cost study because of our accelerated depreciation that's still there and available. So after the building is purchased, more, more often you're hearing about, or maybe you even know when you're making your investment, that there is a plan for CapEx. And that CapEx is going to take place probably in year one and two. That also is available for um, accelerated depreciation. Now, that may not be counted on the cost study that we're getting from that first year uh, report, but that the capital improvements and in, in some part of that, depending on what the job is, what they're doing with the property, that also is available for consideration of bonus depreciation. So what happens is normally the CPA is going to look at that cost and help the owner or asset manager determine what is eligible and take advantage of what we can. Now, there are some things that might be coming through there that would be otherwise called repairs and maintenance. Um, we did have our changeable regs come about a couple of years ago, which better defined what could be called repairs and maintenance. Now, those costs, if they are eligible for that, are just an expense of operations. This is not something we're going to have to worry about bonus on. Uh, and it's not also subject to recapture later when we sell it. So we're looking for and interested in calling as much as we can repairs and maintenance under the regs in order to help uh, with any kind of recapture that might come available next, in the next couple of years. Now, the third thing on my list is the sale of real estate and the ability for even your investment maybe to be eligible for a 1031. Now, this doesn't mean to you that you'd be able to take, say, your partnership interest. An example would be that you're investing in a particular uh, group that has formed an LLC, and that LLC is going to hold that uh, apartment complex or multifamily property. If you're selling your interest, this is not qualifying under the 1031 rule. But what I'm referring to is possibly even in um, in areas where maybe the, the group of people that are investing in that partnership decide altogether they want to do a like-kind exchange. And you're selling the property inside the partnership and replacing it with new. And that allows you to defer the game and wait until some future year and keep the dollars in your pocket longer so that there's not... Um, you know, that you're able to buy up and, and invest more and produce more income uh, without worrying about the taxation. Now, there are other opportunities for the 1031. You could be owning single family and you can use uh, the sales from single family and buy other single family rental properties. The qualifications under like kind really kind of focuses on whether this is income producing property. And it has to be real estate. So under our new tax reform, is limiting our like kind to real estate only. But this is an opportunity to save some money. And this is another advantage that you can only get under the real estate investment. Now, there's also a way to defer your gains. Uh, and this can also even stretch into your stock gains. So if you're trading in the market and you have some capital gains from stock and you want to defer the capital gain tax on that, you may want to consider um, taking what you're 
proceeds are from that sale and reinvested in an opportunity zone. Oh, opportunity, yeah. opportunity zones have been around for a very short time, they're very new. And this is something that people are more and more uh, looking at trying to uh, begin this. Some, most of what I've seen so far are under construction. So when you're in the development stages of an opportunity zone, um, you may have a, a waiting period to even receive cash from these properties because there is a development period. And they usually hold longer. And you want them to hold longer. You want them to hold long at least 10 years. Now, if you invest your dollars into an opportunity zone, um, that also defers your tax over a period of time and can be taxable if they sell before 10 years. What's good about this opportunity zone and opportunity is not just the stock gains can be deferred. Um, you can also have another particular multifamily deal actually sell in that same year and you can defer your gain under an opportunity zone property. You can also look at single family properties and see if you want to sell them to do an opportunity zone. So there's different areas of opportunity here that stretch beyond real estate. And, and a lot of people have asked me about stocks and stock gains and how can I um, help my tax regarding that? And that's an opportunity that you may want to look at. Now it's going to be case by case and what market you're in and you know that that's what you need to do, do your due diligence to understand what that means to you. The last thing that I wanted to talk about is the fact that while you're holding the multifamily, for the most part, you're going to see um, cash returns. And those can come monthly, quarterly, however the, the asset managers have determined the cash flow will go. Uh, typically though, when you receive that money, and it, several people have asked me this, is it taxable? It's not. So it's, you're receiving cash while you're holding it tax-free. So this is also concerned uh, you know, several people ask, what do you mean? What does that mean to me? What's the money really represent? And some are going to be paid off the profit. So as you're seeing the property produce income and there's plenty of cash flow there, the asset managers will be considering a payout to the investors. And the other component of that could be just a return on your investment. And either positions that you have, these are the cash itself is not taxable, and you're not claiming that per se. What you're worried about on the income taxation of any rural estate property is what is presented on my K1 between boxes one and thirteen. And typically, you're going to see some tax losses uh, in the first few years, at least. On average, I see most of them being in the first two years, and sometimes into the third. But you will see these. Um, what I would call paper losses, right? Because they're not necessarily cash flow losses. Uh, so when you're holding your investment, you are getting, I would call mailbox money. That's how I call it. But, you know, you're getting that tax-free. Which is awesome. I don't love taxes. So let's talk about whether you're an active or passive investor. Maybe most of you know, but I wanted to talk about a couple of things. And this comes about... Because some people want to understand the difference, you know, like why would I choose one or the other? Usually for me, it's like, well, someone that's passive is someone that doesn't know enough to, to I mean, there's so many pieces to this and, 
you're fighting with like your tax valuation with the city. I mean, there's, there's always just a bunch of things going on. I mean, weekly with every single property. So someone that doesn't you know, know how to do all that or have the time and or both, you know, that's usually how I define it. But this is actually like another way to, to define between the two. What's it going to do financially? It really, I, I really can kind of divide it down into whether you have a skin in the game or not. Yeah. Really. And so a passive investor, you, you're putting your money into the deal, but you're not necessarily making day-to-day operations. You're not on a property. You're not, you know, determining um, who the tenants are or, you know, how the property should be ran. Um, you're not necessarily even signing on mortgage line, you know, when you're, the new property, you're just putting your cash in and you're trusting someone else to manage that money. Now, if you're actively involved, and this would be the scope of what I would call material participation, you're actually signing on the dotted line of the mortgage statement. You're out there, you're feet to the ground. You're often out on the property, talking to the property management. You are part of the decision-making on how the property will be operating. You're looking at um, particular issues that might come about, you know, and dealing with those particular issues when the property's running. You're doing the due diligence up front and considering what the property should be. You also have performance risk, right, which is something that you're writing within your agreements as to what that means to you. But you're also part of any kind of regulatory requirements. You're very much responsible for those uh, particular things and as part of your job to oversee the property. So when you have skin in the game and you have a little more uh, to lose, and that means, you know, several areas of legality, uh, you're more of a material participator. And so on a tax point of view, it really does matter whether you're passive or active because the way that your K-1 will be represented on your tax return will depend on how classify yourself. So I'm going to give you a good example, really, to kind of go over something that um, a lot of people ask me about anyway. And I, I developed an example of just the same kind of apples apples as far as uh, what dollars are going on on the tax return, but on the view of whether you're passive or active. And a lot of times I'd like to kind of present it because it's, it is a topic that often is a curiosity to those, especially on the passive side, because there's a lot that you hear out there about how the money is going to be offset against your tax return, what real savings you have. So I thought I would do an example of just kind of walking through what it looks like if you had invested in a property that is $100,000 investment. And we're assuming some things on this estimate because we're also saying, well, you may have a full-time job as a passive investor and also be investing in the stock market, have some other source of income. Uh, and you are also, uh, you know, looking for that uh, opportunity to use that bonus depreciation as best you can. Uh, and I'm also sharing the active side of it, the active investor side, because they are also earning income, but this is going to be something because they're materially participating. They may be getting um, a sponsor fees, asset management fees, acquisition fees, which are all earned income, by the way. So when we're talking about this, I'm trying to do W-2 versus earned income comparison 
for one that is materially participating and one that is passive. So assuming that they invest 100,000, when I say they're investing 100,000 on a material participant, it's most of the time they are buying in to both the passive investment strategy as well as being the sponsor of the asset manager. So in this, in this point of view, when we have uh, this first K-1 come through because of the cost study, we're saying about 65,000 of it will be available to you. Now this is gonna vary depending on, on the property itself, depending upon the cost study. But on a $100,000 investment, you can fairly expect about a $65,000 loss that's gonna come through on your K-1. For the passive investor, because they are uh, limited to what we call the passive loss rules, they're not necessarily going to get that tax deduction in the very first year that they receive the K-1. However, on the material participation side of it, the active investor is going to see that income available or that loss available to offset their other income. So as you see on the, the, uh, this, the example I've given you here, that each of them are going to receive 12,000 a year on their investment because they invested in it, they'll get cash. Now in both points of view, they're gonna have tax-free that money, yet still have that tax loss on their K-1. And they're also going to be um, expecting similar benefits coming through on their K-1 because they're investing both 100,000 on the uh, projected uh, example I have. For a passive investor, they're gonna actually pay tax normally as they would without that K-1 on the first year that they receive it. However, you're not losing that money and that money is sitting there waiting for you to take that investment benefit. So it's, it is there and available to you. So you're just not seeing it in the first year because of the passive loss limitations. However, in the active point of view, you're actually getting that money in the very first year against the earned income that you received. So if you look at this uh, particular example, the passive investor is paying a little bit more in tax than the material participation, okay? Because of that situation. Now that's not necessarily a terrible thing because as a passive investor, you're still gonna save money. And where I see most of the money being saved is in the final year when you actually sell it. But for a material participant, they're gonna see actual real savings coming in that first year. Now. In the, in the scope of things, you may see that even so, at the end of the, when you go to sell it, the material participant may actually save even more on that end deal. But what we're, what we're talking about here is, even though you're holding that investment during, say it's a five year hold, that cash you're getting during this period over the five years up until you actually recognize the gain is typically tax-free. So you're, you're getting the tax losses as a passive investor and waiting for you to use it, but not being worried about paying tax on the cash you're receiving. Okay, so it's, it is a little bit of a delay, but it's not a bad thing to have a delay. What a good one else. So if we look at this on the year of the sale, we're still saying we have $200,000 of earned incomes. We're trying to keep the other scenarios pretty consistent. 
Okay. But in that year, we're going to actually see a gain because now we've been able to sell this property and it's going to come off with the $70,000 gain. If you notice on the passive investor, now this is when you get to use the $65,000 loss. Now for you, you're going to still see the same amount of money that the active investor is receiving in, in the game, because they also, if you remember, we're using this as an example that they have invested on the um, particular A units as well. So they're getting, they put in a hundred thousand, they're going to get the same return as you, 170,000. So you have, again, that cash flow coming through that that cash is not what's being taxed. What's being taxed is a $70,000 gain that we're seeing on the K-1. So now we have passive losses being offset to your investment in the final year. So now you're paying 38,000 when the year, you know, with the first year you're paying 64. So now you have saved $26,000 in taxes. So on the earned uh, side of things and for the material participant, they're still actually saving even so because of the way that the income is structured on the return. So they're still getting a savings of $35,000 of, of the overall investment for over the five years. So we're, we're seeing that both are winning in this particular situation. Uh, and you, what you're, if you were to do a cash analysis and look at, I put a hundred thousand in, um, I'm getting a cash back of 170. My gain is 70,000. On top of that, I'm saving $26,000 in taxes. So now my investment's really bringing me back $96,000 in cash. So for a lot of people, they say, well, what, what's going on with, you know, my investment and is it really helping me to have these write-offs? Well, sure it is. We just have maybe seen it in the very first year and it's kind of a wait and see moment for you, but you are seeing that you're advancing your wealth, you're keeping taxes in your, in your pocket and you're, you're growing that sometimes even more than the stock market can bring you. So I wanted to help you understand kind of the scenario because it's not something that it easily understood when you're looking at your tax return year after year. But what you're looking at here is really an advantage to invest in real estate. Yeah. So it makes returns, it saves you taxes versus it just sitting somewhere making a very low return. Um, this is a great example. Right. Right. And I, I, I think that for most people, when they're looking at investing in real estate, um, it's hard to get their head around all of what's happening and understand that uh, when they can't really see it necessarily all at one time, um, you know, in a big picture sense. So, uh, but I think it's, it's really, I think a smart move to be in real estate Yeah, and, you know, to, to move your wealth in the right direction. Now I had a couple of questions from the, the slides um, and I know that there's a way to do it, but I'm kind of newer to this. There's a way to pull up a whiteboard. I just don't remember how. So I'm not going to do it because then I'll probably lose everything we just did. So um, hopefully it's just a few easy questions. Uh, whenever you're looking at the cost study, does we always get tr 
people try to always sell us this uh, cost segregation study by an engineer through a certain company and they're pretty expensive. Um, do you have to have a certain engineer do a cost segregation study or is there a way to do a cost study um, by just taking an average of um, what would have been depreciated over so many years uh, based on the age of the asset, you know, maybe satellite photos of the roof, things like that, if it's like a large company that has someone internal that can, like how does that work? There's different methods to do a cost study. Um, typically, if, you're, if your value is about 800,000 or so, you're gonna wanna do one. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's different methods to do it. So first of all, you don't have to hire the engineer firm. So there are firms out there that they market that and they do have the engineer viewpoint. And so their fees are gonna be higher. They're uh, almost two times or two and a half times higher than other firms that might have um, appraisers, just certified appraisers that also have the same viewpoint about the property, but a different way maybe to value it. And so they, they both of these particular settings, they're going to still use the court cases. They're still going to have the tax um, knowledge that needs to take place along with the study. And, and they both will support you if there is an audit over that cost study. But the certified certified appraisers are going to be probably half the cost as what you would buy a, a study from an engineer, and you know I think it depends on the company you're using and how how well they do you know with their reputation in the market. But they can usually do a pretty efficient job for you, and they may not be as detailed as an engineer would be, but they are going to be at least half the cost. The third approach is for um, those that maybe are. I would consider maybe a one to five million building would fit this kind of category where you can have your CPA. If they have knowledge of the market costs, if they have knowledge about the cost segregation rules, they can also do in the very first year an allocation of those costs. And usually that will come in a much lighter uh, calculation. It's not gonna, you know, in most cases, they may not walk the building, uh, or walk the property, but they'll know enough about the property. They'll know enough about the market rates. And that is an acceptable method. Now, if you were to consider all three together, you'd want, um, you know, if you're a $5 million property or more, because of the size of the cost study um, that can produce a bonus depreciation, you're going to want a good study report because they're going to be really in depth about it. They're going to provide that support to how they came to those numbers. And it's going to be more uh, um, advantageous to you if there ever was an audit. So, uh, the, the you know, the prices are going to range. They're definitely going to range in this. And so, you know, for me, if you can find a good a group that has, you know, kind of the middle ground pricing, uh, then that's what I would do for most of, for most of our clients. It's what they look for. Okay, awesome. That's actually really, I feel like there's all these gold nuggets, you know, I'm like, ding, ding, ding. That's awesome. So we have about seven minutes left and this may be too long of a question to do right now. And if I need to do it another time, that's that's cool too. But um, whenever somebody invests into a syndication, um, like if I'm looking at our exhibit A and I'm looking at who's invested or like uh, people call it the cap table, um, who's invested and what do they invest with? Like, is it a trust or a self-directed IRA or is it just cash or is it a S Corp, C Corp? Um, I don't know if this is an easy answer, but uh, tax implications for each of those different types of entities, what would you say would be probably the most advantageous 
on sale. Because for example, um, some different types of Roth IRAs, I believe they have like UBIT tax um, on sale. Um, and so I don't know which of those or what what way to invest, I guess say top two would be be the best. The top two that I would say the best investment strategy would be either your 401k, if it's solo 401k, self-directed, or you hold it personally. Now you can, um, the IRAs are definitely, neither of, either of them, traditional or Roth, are going to see you it. Now the Roth IRA may lead you to some additional benefits just because of, it, it is post-tax dollars that's going into the fund. That when you go to, to draw that money out because you've you know invested in the property and it's grown your wealth inside the IRA, that you're actually benefiting more from that on the tax strategy point of view. But while holding both the traditional and the Roth IRA are going to experience UBIT. But the four, the solo 401ks don't have the debt financing income issue. So you can grow your wealth in the solo 401k and still retain that wealth rather than pay the tax on it when you realize the gain. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So I also have heard about uh, qualified retirement plans, which kind of, I think, follow or fall in the same kind of area, right? Where they're, that they're not subject to that tax, right? That is correct. Okay. The 401k is, is one of the vehicles under that particular umbrella. And those are um, marketed rather well for those. But you have to understand not everybody qualifies for that particular vehicle. So they, they need that earned income. They're outside of their W-2 job. So you know, they're going to need to do something, um, you know, there's a lot of my IT clients that they do IT consulting, so they can do a solo 401k and still benefit from that, even though they're still working in W-2 positions. So I'll be an example of something where you're getting a 1099 from another source of income. You may be looking at that as an option. And when it is available, that's what I would suggest. Look at that because you can roll those IRAs tax-free. Now, it's not the same for Roth. If you have a Roth, there's there is going to be some tax situations. But if you you're holding an IRA and you want to consider the solo 401k, you could do that tax free to roll it into the 401k and then do your investment from that. Wow, that's awesome! Great tips. Thank you so much. Um, so, Christy, we've got about three minutes left. What I have one question. I normally ask three, but we don't have time. So, what would you say has been probably your biggest lesson? Period. Biggest lesson in, in real estate. Whatever. <laughs> like, like for me, keep the bathroom I, closed or the door closed right. in the bathroom. <laughs> my, my, uh, I think the biggest lesson I probably learned over time is, is going to be twofold. One is, um, do your due diligence. Understand what you're, what you're doing. Understand what it, eyes wide open is what I call it, you know. Understand where you're going and what you're doing and, and, and be educated. And then the other part about it is be flexible because when you're in, in the mindset that this should, you know, you've done your diligence, do a diligence, this is how it should go. It doesn't always go the way you think. And so be flexible enough so that you're able to respond when things are different and, and make a, you know, kind of, you know, whatever it needs to be to modify that road so it still can be successful. 
that is a thousand percent the, the, the case. Yeah, this isn't a textbook, you know, it's life. So, um, Christy, how can uh, our audience get a hold of you um, after, the, after we're done with the podcast, um, however you want them to? Are they have questions. So my email is shared on the first page of that slide. You can do that, or okay. you can go to my website, www.klcipla, and you can. There's a contact page there. You can reach out to us that way. We get those emails to the info account. Uh, otherwise, you can call me, and my number is also shared on that first page. So you can uh, reach out, however, and let us know if you have any questions. We'd be happy to answer them. Awesome, Christy. Thank you so much for your time. I've been really looking forward to this because you've helped us so much with, you know, so many things that I don't know. I really definitely lean on the professionals and then, you know, provided a way for us to get in in contact afterwards and do a consult. So thank you so much for being on here today and being such a wealth of knowledge for my investors and myself and everybody. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Everybody, thank you so much. We'll see you next time on Number One Leading Ladies. But, you know, best wishes, even in the midst of all this, everything's going to, you know, seems to be okay, trending okay so far. Yeah, I think that after the election, everything's going to be like. (laughs) That's, that's what, you know, that's what my husband was saying too. (laughs) So for now, I'm still hunting deals and doing what I can, you know. All right, Christy, thank you so much. I'll see you soon. Yeah, have a good weekend. You too. Thank you so much for tuning in today and listening to Number One Leading Ladies, a podcast for women by women. If you would like to get in contact with us at The Apartment Queen, you can email us at admin at The Apartment Queen. You can also set up a phone call and call us at 469-990-4627. If you would like any further information about future projects coming up, whether it is with our residential brokerage or with the apartment queen itself, investing in apartments, all you have to do is schedule a time to talk with us. Talk soon. See you next week. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.